0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. To stop hate speech, giants are taking on a giant. Global corporations boycotting Facebook. We'll hear from one Colorado company that joined early,
1: The North Face. For us, it wasn't necessarily one specific post or one specific event that triggered that movement because we've been concerned about, you know, misinformation and frankly, hate speech not only on the overall platform, but also within groups.
0: Then a helmet debate rages in a youth sport that doesn't get as much attention as baseball or football. Also, the Brown Palace in Denver is slowly coming back to life. And so is live music there. Live
2: music just reaches in and grabs your soul.
0: Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're going to start with a moment of joy. A few moments, really. This is an update to a story we brought you at the start of the COVID-19 shutdown. At the time, we'd run into a pianist for a famed Denver hotel. John A. Kite, and I've been at the Brown Palace Hotel for 33 years. I have the best job ever But he lost that job when the hotel closed its restaurants and then shut down altogether. Well, the Browns open again with its long tradition of afternoon tea and live piano music. We recently paid John a visit during his tea gig. He'd had a few weeks to adjust to a new normal. But his first day back was still fresh on his mind.
2: Oh my gosh, I I got to walk in the Brown Palace front doors, and I felt like it was the first time I walked through those doors. The, the, The lobby was brightly lit, and I looked up at that stained glass ceiling, and I just lost it. This has been my best friend for 33 years, the Brown Palace. And I haven't seen her for three months. So it is that every day we see customers that we haven't seen in three months, co-workers that we haven't seen in three months that are being brought back slowly as business demands. And I know I can speak for many of my friends that work here the old saying you don't know what you got till it's gone it is just such a great feeling to be back and doing what we do
0: the day of our visit we counted nine people at five tables properly distanced from one another a few other folks trickled in Stephanie Bracamonte was checking off an item from her bucket list. And just in the nick of time, she is moving out of the country.
3: So it's actually my dream to have my, you know, birthday here in the Brown Palace. I worked here before and I've never done this before. So now that I'm actually leaving the country, I was sad when I heard it was closed. Like, oh my God, I was planning to go there on my birthday. But actually, I am here,
4: so I am happy.
0: Pianist John Kite says he spent the stay-at-home months sorting through boxes of old family slides, playing his piano some, and spending lots of time in his kitchen. I have become a pretty decent cook, and
2: I have got the waistline to prove it. However, I'm working on that. I want you to know. So I had no idea that pesto, it's just so good. Oh my God. I just, (laughs) I was so proud of myself. I was just like, God, this is really good.
0: Now, back at the Keys, he says the gig doesn't feel quite like it used to. The crowds are smaller, group sing-alongs at the hotel's ship tavern aren't really happening, and then there are the masks.
2: The mask thing is really funny. Someone told me the other day, you look so much more handsome now than you did before. And I said, well, anytime I cover up my face, that makes me more handsome. So (laughs) playing with a mask is absolutely not an issue for me. Doesn't bother me a bit. The thing that I hear the most often from our guests, whether they be regulars or whether they are people who just wandered in or they're actually staying here, I, this is what I hear the most. It's so good to hear live music. Live music just reaches in and grabs your soul. And people are just so happy that they are in, at a place where that can happen.
0: And where they can make requests.
2: You all have a favorite song? need to Oh, awesome. You know, a little Frank during afternoon tea is a good thing.
0: Walk up to the Brown Palace today, and you'll notice windows are boarded up, some busted. Signs of the recent unrest in Denver. We asked Kite what he makes of the scene. Well, it's not the first
2: time that's happened. And it's always heartbreaking when this best friend of mine is damaged. It hurts. And the people that did it, they don't know that they're not putting a rock through a window. They're putting a rock in my heart. You know, it... I understand. I understand the anger. I understand that we are just a victim of the momentum. It, It was painful. But it is balanced out by... How many joyous times the Brown Palace has been featured prominently in a celebratory mode? I will tell you this one of the most amazing sights I ever saw was when the Broncos won the Super Bowl when you're... the parade came up 17th and hung around right and went down Broadway, right? And it was a sea of people. And the Broncos were in the buses and they were waving at everybody, and it was just Your question was, how did it make me feel when I saw the glass? It made me as sad as I was happy that the Brown Palace was in those photos and in those video clips of the Broncos coming around that corner. There was the Brown Palace. When the Summit of the Eight happened many years ago, and the presidents from around the world came here, to the Brown Palace. And when people were protesting, there was the Brown Palace. And anytime you see the parade of lights coming down around, there's the Brown Palace. And I can promise you, the Brown Palace will continue to be here
0: for whatever comes down the road. Well, before we sauntered away from the Browns' breathtaking lobby, We asked John what song he chose to start with on that first day back. For years and
2: years and years, Stardust kind of was my theme song.
0: Stardust from 1927, written by Hoagie Carmichael.
2: I would start every evening with Stardust, wherever I played. It never occurred to me that that would be a thing to remember, but I sat down to the piano and I was like, you know... Of course, I'm going to play Stardust.
0: Piano man John Kite at the reopened Brown Palace Hotel in Denver. We'll be right back with a boycott in the billions. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. News changes daily, and every day CPR and NPR bring you reliable, up-to-date information, facts and advice, news about what's happening in your state. You have access to this important coverage thanks to the generosity of members who continue to make voluntary donations. Join them. Sustain CPR for yourself and for the benefit of the thousands of listeners who rely on Colorado Public Radio every day, it's easy at CPR.org. There's an advertising boycott of Facebook this month. It's called the Stop Hate for Profit campaign. The goal is to force the social media giant to take a stronger stand against hate speech. One of the first companies to sign on was outdoor apparel brand, The North Face, based here in Colorado. Steve Leonard is vice president of marketing and product creation. And welcome to the
1: program. Thank you for having me.
0: This uh, boycott now includes more than a thousand companies, Coca-Cola, Adidas, Ford, Lego. But The North Face joined the campaign really before any of them. Tell us why.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, The North Face since its founding moments over 50 years ago, has always advocated for the rights of people in our planet. Uh, Our first and very uh, iconic oval tent was originally created to help solve the urban homeless problem overtaking San Francisco in the 70s. And in 1975, we launched the ICE 9 Awards, which was paradoxically an award given to companies or entities causing the most ecological destruction. So, for us, oh, know, so wait, so that, su-
0: that award was sort of a, an award of shame?
1: An award, that's right. Okay. An award <laughs> of shame for uh, people that uh, a company is causing the most destruction. Uh, most recently, we've committed to equity in the outdoors and, and environmental conservation through our Explore Fund, which is celebrating this year its 10 year anniversary. And we've given millions to nonprofit organizations working towards these goals. So, for us, uh, you know, like when we saw this, real cultural moment of pain that we're all experiencing, we took a really strong stance against racism and hate speech. And when we saw the NAACP's call to action to stop hate for profit, it was completely aligned with our values and our strategy. And that's why we we were able to
0: join the movement right away. You mentioned the NAACP and they, along with the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, are Really, the nonprofits behind this campaign, and what do you hope it achieves? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think we were we were really inspired
1: by their call to action, and the goal was really to pause all advertising uh, with Facebook for the month of July in order to raise awareness and really engage Facebook into you know meaningful actions. So, what we've decided to do is we actually took that call to action a little st- step further by pausing right away. So from June 19th until the end of July, we paused all our paid advertising, not only with Facebook, but on the Instagram platform as well. And we've been really pleased to see that the outdoor community rallied right away and the dialogue that, that we're having with Facebook to really drive you know, change because yeah. we're very concerned about racist, uh, violent and hateful content you know on the platform
0: racist, violent, and hateful content. I want to circle back to that. Uh, You mentioned Instagram, which is also owned by Facebook. Can you give me examples of types of hate speech you're concerned about? I mean, I know that one of your concerns was having an ad of yours run next to some hateful post. Just help us understand a little bit more about uh, your concerns here.
1: Yeah, the concerns that uh, we have, along with many other you know, uh, partners and that the, again, the NAACP raised was really first and foremost about the lack of clear guidelines and stricter policies, you know, to stop racist, violent or hateful content and misinformation circulating on the platform. So for us, it wasn't necessarily one specific post or one specific event that triggered that movement because we've been concerned about you know uh, misinformation and, frankly, hate speech, not only on the overall platform, but also within groups.
0: You know, one example of speech that was really hotly debated was when the president mentioned when the looting starts, the shooting starts. Now, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg originally said that was not hate speech, but then he changed his tune. Do you think that was hate speech? Is it the kind of speech that you're thinking of here? Uh,
1: you know, I, I, I don't want to really comment specifically on that line, because uh, to me, the, the conversation is much bigger than that one specific post. But what's interesting to me is the conversation that it triggered.
0: It feels to me like you want to stop hate speech, but when I bring an example that many think is, uh, you won't take a stand on it. Oh, I, it's,
1: you, know, I, you know, for us, you know, let's be very clear, we would have, we would not want to be associated with with that kind of statement because we think that that statement, you know, incite, you know, like, a, a, you know, negative you know, connotation for sure. I guess I want to be respectful to the fact that I'm giving you my opinion, as opposed to, you know, when it comes to the North Face, we're very clear that these are not the type of, of conversation that we want to be associated with. How much ad money are you withholding from Facebook and Instagram? Yes, so it's an important question because uh, we felt like uh, actions always speaks louder than words. So we are part of uh, the VF you know, Corporation, which is a public traded company. So we're not uh, uh, you know, able to share specific information around our budget. But what I can tell you is that if you look at uh, the VF annual report, our advertising budget last year was in the realm of $723 million dollars. Uh, for all brands, you know, the North Face is one of the biggest brands, and Facebook is one of our top two media partners.
0: $723 million, you say, is VF's entire ad budget, and uh, Facebook is one of the largest recipients of that. I'll say that VF also has brands like Vans and Dickies, Smartwool, Jansport. Is it that each brand is making an individual decision here? Like, I, I think some of the brands are on board with this boycott and some are not. Absolutely. Each brand, you know, um, is
1: making their own decisions. You know, it's exciting to see brands, you know, continuing to join the movement. Uh, For instance, our sister, you know, brand Vans, made a pretty strong statement in support uh, for the movement just, uh, you know, recently as well.
0: Are they also redirecting their ad money? Absolutely. You mentioned that you're having conversations with Facebook. I'd like to know if, if you think the needle is moving, if you can imagine, come the end of July that there's a point at which you actually don't go back to spending money with them.
1: Yeah, I think so. What's been really exciting to see all these other brands who've been supporting the movement, because it is a global movement. I think what's also been very positive is to see that Mark Zuckerberg and his leadership team are, you know, are being very vocal in addressing it. And you know our Facebook team as well has been in contact with us, and we're, we're planning to meet with them to review our expectations and next steps as well. So dialogue is going to be is really important for us we want to make sure that the dialogue leads into concrete actions and a roadmap of change you know to improve the platform because the stakes are too high so that's the conversation that that we're undertaking this month and we will be reevaluating our strategy at the end of the month to decide what our next step will be for the Facebook platform
0: Are you worried about becoming the thought
1: police not, not really, to be honest, because again, our, our strategy is, is simple. We just want to create an environment where we can support the community. We believe that exploration and, and outdoors is for everyone. And we believe that you can only enjoy the outdoors if you create a broader sense of community. And we spend so much time on social media uh, that you know, social media and Facebook have to uphold stricter policies in general.
0: You say it's simple, and yet determining what is hate speech and what is free speech is anything but simple. You
1: know, that that's totally a fair comment. If you think about, you know, like uh, one specific, uh, you know, tweet versus the conversation or the groups that we see on the Facebook platform, or the misinformation or false advertising that you can see on the platform, you realize that there's a, there's a much broader perspective here that can... Uh, you know, lead to, uh, you know, much stricter rules.
0: Well, Steve, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Steve Lennard is vice president of marketing and product creation for the North Face, which is based in Colorado. It was the first big name to join the Stop Hate for Profit boycott this month against Facebook. Racism led a Colorado pastor to move her family cross-country for the second time in a year. Last fall, she was appointed to a Denver-area church and excited about the future. But CPR's Haley Sanchez reports it hasn't been what she expected.
5: The Reverend Akila Bixler is African-American. She learned pretty quickly that Colorado is nothing like New York. My experience here in Colorado was with there
4: being so much less diversity, I feel it. And I feel racism. It's in the air that we breathe and it's in the water that we drink.
5: The United Methodist Church appointed her to St. Andrew and Highlands Ranch. It's a predominantly affluent white suburb west of Denver. Reverend Akila felt like it was her calling from God, so she eagerly packed up her family and trekked across the country.
4: We arrived in New York City and we didn't have a car. So, on our second day here, we actually went to
5: a couple of different dealerships and we had an idea of the car that we wanted and we went to that dealership. Where a salesman said they didn't have what they were looking for. So, he showed them something else a base model, no bells, no whistles. I'm trying to get behind the wheel to drive it. The plastic
4: encasing that goes underneath the steering wheel like fell down. Like it was like, okay, I think that we're going to go ahead and go.
5: Go ahead and go to another dealership, but there, they waited for almost a half an hour before someone finally came out of the sales room to say, Has
4: anyone has anyone helped you? It was just like this this idea of like, Oh, okay, people colour, her uh, yeah, they're not really serious or I don't know I don't know what they thought. Like that no one was there willing to help us.
5: They bought a car at that dealership anyway. Looking back, Reverend Nikila says she's not quite sure why they did, considering how they were treated. But that doesn't compare to how her kids have been treated. I have two children, and my children are
4: biracial. And when they're in their classes, they are often like the only person um, of color. For them to be in these places and spaces and then trying to have to be the voices of like Latinx folks as well as like black folks in every single
5: conversation was beyond exhausting. It was beyond exhausting for her kids to have friends who wouldn't acknowledge them at school. Her daughter would talk to one classmate on the school bus every day, and the second they got off that school bus, that other girl would not
4: speak to our daughter. In the case of our son, he had a really good friend that we often ran into him in the neighborhood. When my son and my spouse went to the school, this child who went out of his way to like say hello to us when like his grown ups weren't around, but when his grown ups were there and my child
5: said hello to him, he didn't respond.
4: He acted like he didn't know who our child was.
5: It took her several months to accept that she and her family were the targets of racism. I finally decided to stop pretending it away and to stop acting like it's not an individual person that's just being rude that particular day. She confided in the Reverend Valerie L. Jackson, who was also a Black clergy member in Denver.
6: I
2: witnessed Akilah's anguish over this. She was excited for her gifts and her graces to be seen, acknowledged, and embraced. So it's been a huge disappointment for her to come to the realization that this is not the time for her to
4: be here. It's a really bittersweet thing. We don't have to live like this. And so,
5: and that's is enough. And that, it was a great experience. It was a great adventure. We learned a lot. Reverend Aquila didn't renew her appointment in Colorado. She returns to New York to do ministry work, but not with a specific congregation. I'm Haley Sanchez, CPR News.
0: Colorado is seeing an uptick in hospitalizations for COVID 19, and in some parts of the state, officials are concerned about a rise in overall cases. Statewide, the percentage of people testing positive for the virus has also inched up, but it's relatively stable if you consider what's happening in other states. CPR's Andrea Dukakis is back with an update. Hi, Andrea. Hey, Ryan. And let's start with the statewide numbers. What do you see happening right now?
6: One key thing we look at is the percentage of people testing positive for COVID out of all of the tests being done. In Colorado, the latest numbers show about 4% are coming back positive. That's been creeping up a bit this month, but not by a huge amount. In Arizona, which is a hotspot, about 27%, so more than a quarter of all tests are positive. Hmm. And that's about where Colorado was back in April. When it comes to hospitalizations, though, there's been a pretty big jump in just the last week, about 28%. Wow. I sh- yeah. So I should say more hospitals are now reporting their numbers, but it's not nearly enough to account for this spike. So that's a concerning number that we'll keep watching.
0: Indeed. Where are some of the pockets in the state you know, that are dealing with more cases?
6: One is El Paso County, where health officials like Kimberly Patterson are watching the numbers closely.
4: Throughout the past couple of weeks, we have seen a steady increase in the number of cases that have been reported to us. So what that means is that we are in a time of moderate to high risk of transmission, just based on the number of individuals that we have who are ill in our community.
6: Pattison attributes the rising cases to people returning to their normal activities, shopping, going to the office, seeing friends. But one thing that makes this a bit less worrisome, she says, is the folks getting sick are younger and aren't getting as sick.
4: Our average age of our cases has been decreasing. I think right now, Around 20% of our cases that have been reported in the past week were coming from the 20 to 29 age range. And then probably our second highest age range is 30 to 39. So we're seeing a younger group of individuals who are becoming infected with COVID-19 and a lower proportion of cases who are severely ill.
6: So fewer folks that are really sick. Mm. Uh, Another area of concern is Adams County. We noticed that the health department that represents Adams, along with Arapahoe and Douglas Counties, just voted in favor of a mask mandate. And we wondered why, so we looked at the numbers and noticed a higher percentage of people in Adams County have been testing positive lately. Um, and there's another other parts of the state that have decided to slow the reopening of their economies because they're worried about caseloads.
0: You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and CPR's Andrea Dukakis joins us for a check in on COVID 19 in the state. Andrea is quite popular, so of course her phone would be ringing. <laughs> um, there is another potentially worrisome number you're following, Andrea. What is it?
6: Uh, this is the R-naught value. The governor talks a lot about this, and it's important when you track a virus. It sounds complicated, but it really isn't. The R-naught is the average number of other people one person with COVID-19 infects. Mm-hmm. So if a state's r not value is around one, each infected person is giving the virus to one other person. Experts say if the R-naught value is more than one, the virus will spread quickly. If it's below one, it'll slow down. Colorado's R-naught value was above two at the beginning of the pandemic, and then it was below one from the start of April until early June as people stayed home. Since then, it's crept up to very slightly above one. The key now is that it doesn't continue to creep up because, again, that would mean more people will get
0: infected. We want to keep it below one. Right. Uh, When the state started opening for business again, wasn't some of this uptick expected?
6: definitely and there's this delicate balancing act the state has to do the key is to keep the numbers from increasing too much but understanding some increase is inevitable also with the summer tourist season you have to be worried about visitors bringing the virus into the state from other places
0: right part of the state's goal has been not just to manage how many people get the disease but how many people get it at once and whether there's room for you at the hospital we have to exactly. keep that in mind one thing that it's clear, is there's been rising demand for tests at Denver's Pepsi Center in the last couple of weeks. Uh, Demand's been so high at the Pepsi Center that they had to put a limit on the amount of daily tests. And I think anecdotally, Andrea, we've heard other testing sites in the state are also seeing more demand. What's happening? The
6: Pepsi Center site does a quarter, over a quarter, of all of Colorado's COVID tests. So it's a critical part of the state's effort to track and stop the virus. I talked to Kelly Christensen. She's spokeswoman for the Denver Department of Public Safety, and she's part of the group that oversees the Pepsi Center testing. She said the increase in people wanting to be tested this week in particular probably had something to do with pent-up demand because the site was closed over the holiday weekend. But there are other factors,
4: too. Nationally, we're hearing that COVID is increasing and that might be making people feel concerned. The other thing we thought might be happening is people might have believed that they were exposed over the weekend and wanted to get a test when we opened on Tuesday.
6: She says the Pepsi Center got to the point where they were averaging about 900 tests a day, and more recently, they tested more than 2,000 in one day. Uh, The lab that processes the tests has been overwhelmed. The turnaround time to get results used to be three or four days. Then it grew to eight days. Uh, So now the Pepsi Center is limiting its numbers to 2,000 tests a day.
0: Again, this is completely anecdotal, Andrea, but I've had several friends who've gone to get tested because they are, for the first time, going to see some of their family members and they want to make sure that they come up negative before they do that. I don't know if you've heard something similar.
6: Sure. And and they're waiting a long time to find out the results in many cases, and that's a problem.
0: Thanks so much, Andrea. Thank you. CPR's Andrea Dukakis, who had help from CPR's Chuck Murphy, number cruncher extraordinaire. Still to come, a helmet debate, raging in girls' lacrosse. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News. CPR's photojournalists have received awards for the work they do every day, giving visual context for vital stories. Hart Van Denberg from CPR News. In some ways, you have the luxury to think about how to cover a story in a thoughtful way. And Kevin Beatty from Denverite. My job is to make art for news, and it's awesome. (laughs) Look for award-winning photojournalism from Colorado Public Radio at denverite.com and cpr.org. In youth lacrosse, boys are required to wear helmets, girls are not. A subject that's been debated for years among coaches, parents, and players. Here's Megan Zeman, who runs lacrosse organizations in Metro Denver. She's also operations manager for the University of Denver women's team.
3: I see the argument on both sides, but I'm leaning definitely more towards the girls should be in helmets. I think that our game has progressed, and we will be kidding ourselves if they're not in some sort of headgear in the future.
0: Zeman thinks back to playing lacrosse when she was a teenager.
3: From a personal standpoint, if wearing a helmet would help my concussions growing up, as far as the outcomes and what I still have to go through today... I definitely would have been more inclined to wear one.
0: She says she has migraines to this day. Cherry Creek High School coach Bailey Zare says young women who've had head injuries should be allowed to wear helmets. She's not convinced all players ought to.
7: I think it's a safe game. I think the rules are set up for it to be a safe game. When we're talking about widespread um, adding helmets to girls across, you know, I really struggle with, feeling like that's the answer to reducing head trauma in girls lacrosse. earlier and better training as girls are starting to play the sport, I think can really reduce um, some of those head injuries that we are seeing just based on good form.
0: Zare says women's lacrosse is different from men's. There's more finesse, more strategy and less aggression.
7: You know, I worry that when we start to add helmets in that we are getting on that path, that slow march into the boys game.
0: Well, a new study from the University of Colorado indicates girls are much more likely than boys to suffer concussions under certain conditions. Dawn Comstock is a professor of epidemiology at the Colorado School of Public Health. She estimates that 45% of the concussions girls suffer from being hit by sticks or balls could be prevented with headgear. And Don, welcome to the program. Good morning. To be clear, the rules for male and female lacrosse players differ Uh, rules to limit body contact and reduce the chances of getting walloped by balls or sticks. Some people argue that that reduces the need for helmets. What did you find?
3: You're right. Those rules people believe are protecting girls from concussions, particularly from being struck by balls or sticks. But when we actually looked at high school athletes playing lacrosse from the 2008-9 academic year through the 2018-19 academic year, we found the concussion rates in girls and boys were remarkably similar. If those rules were effective, we should have seen a much lower concussion rate in girls, and we did not.
7: Hmm.
0: What does that tell you about whether the differences between the boys' game and the girls' game are really all that stark.
3: Well, if concussion rates are relatively similar, despite rule differences, then we need to look at the mechanisms of injury. And when we did that, we found that the boys are most likely to sustain a concussion during athlete-athlete contact. But over 72% of all of the concussions sustained by girls were when they were struck by a ball or a stick. In the head? Correct.
0: Uh-huh. Uh, help us understand the concussion rate in boys versus girls overall, just for some context.
3: Sure. Overall, the concussion rate in boys was only 1.19 times higher than the concussion rate in girls. They were virtually the same.
0: So I think what I hear you saying is that beliefs aren't necessarily backed up by the data here.
3: That's Correct. What our data clearly shows is that concussions are a problem in the girls' game, and when we look at the mechanisms of injury, that allows us to try to find ways to intervene to keep girls safer, and our findings regarding girls sustaining injuries from being struck in the head by the stick or the ball clearly demonstrates that a helmet would have been effective in preventing most of those concussions.
0: I'm curious what gear female players do have to wear. It's not that they have no protection.
3: That's true. Uh, Originally, girls were allowed to wear soft headgear, but it really wasn't defined. They could use a variety of things from, like, soccer headbands to rugby scrum caps. And then in 2015, standards would put out for a new female lacrosse headgear. It's basically a flexible headgear and that came on the market in 2016. So that is available for any female lacrosse player from youth through college. However, the organizing bodies that set the rules of play, while they've made this protective gear allowable, they have not yet taken the step to make it a required piece of protective equipment.
0: Meaning there's not an outright ban on headgear? In other words, I If I were a girls lacrosse player, I wouldn't be kicked off the field for having it, would I?
3: So the crux of this is that there actually is a ban against the only headgear that's been shown to be effective against stick and ball impacts. And that's the hard shell helmet with a full face mask that's actually required in the men's game. All boys lacrosse players in the United States are required to wear this helmet to prevent head injury, specifically concussions, because it's been proven to be effective, and yet the girls are not allowed to wear that headgear, that same helmet. They are restricted from using that helmet. In
0: 2015, I know that Florida mandated headgear for female high school lacrosse players, and a study after that said it might have actually caused more concussions and other injuries. What, what what was going on there?
3: Yeah, that's an interesting study. It's, it's relatively small and relatively short, and it's difficult to actually evaluate because, uh, as I just said, the flexible headgear that's allowed in the female game wasn't even on the market until 2016. So before that, girls were allowed to wear a variety of different things, and frankly, our research shows that not very many high school girls are wearing anything when they play. It's, it's difficult. Uh, any study needs to be replicated and confirmed in other populations, and work is being done right now to try to see if the current flexible headgear that's allowed in the women's game is effective. If it is, great, then governing bodies need to make it mandatory. If it's not, well, then we need to re-examine why girls are restricted from using the same helmet that's required of boys.
0: Isn't one argument, though, that the boys' equipment is, like, too heavy for female players?
3: <laughs> that's, that's kind of a silly argument, isn't it? Because uh, while as a, as a group males tend to be bigger and stronger you can always find a smaller boy playing uh, a boy playing lacrosse that's smaller than many of the girls on the girls team uh, it's so individualized and obviously the hard shell helmet with a full face mask it must not be too heavy to play in it must not restrict vision too much it must not inhibit performance too much because the boys are wearing it just fine and playing the game So it's kind of silly to think that the helmet would act any differently sitting on a girl's head compared to a boy's head.
0: Don, I'm not sure this is a question for a professor of epidemiology, but I just I feel like I have to ask it. It, Is there a subtle or even not so subtle sexism here?
3: Well, it is it is an interesting question. The girls and boys lacrosse do play by different rules. And the rules established for girls lacrosse were specifically Uh, established to make it a a less violent game. The boys' game is a full-contact game. The girls' game is not a full-contact game. So if you go back to the origins of those rule differences, you can see that there was perhaps an effort to be more protective of those girls' players to have them play a slightly different game by slightly different rules. Mm -hmm. And I think it's the carryover of some of that historical attempt to protect girls that may be— providing this misguided belief that they should not be wearing protective equipment like the boys.
0: I, I do think one thing we haven't addressed is the concern that if you make girl girls and women's lacrosse players uh, wear a helmet— that, that has a ratcheting up effect or, or that maybe someone in a helmet is sort of more emboldened to take a hit or give a hit is is there evidence to say that's true
3: so intuitively that uh, you can kind of understand that argument right yeah, yeah. Um, it's really called the gladiator effect okay and, uh, you know that when you put people on in a protective equipment they'll play with wild abandon and <laughs> play much more aggressively um, I can't find any scientific literature to back that up and more importantly Particularly at the youth and high school level and the collegiate level, um, there are rules of play. There are officials to enforce those rules. There are coaches to coach those rules. So no female lacrosse player can play more aggressively than allowed by the rules unless those coaches, officials, and their parents at the high school and youth level allow them to. So the game can't get out of control unless the governing bodies allow it to get out of control. The other argument against that is um, boys also should have been expected to play with much more abandoned when the helmet was introduced to their game. And obviously, they did not do so to the uh, extent that it was detrimental to their health, or they would not still be required to wear that helmet.
0: I just want to underscore before we go the importance of reducing concussions in young people. I mean, this has a lifetime effect.
3: Absolutely. Over the last decade or so, we have become acutely aware of both the short and long-term potential negative health effects associated with concussions. And playing sports, it's a wonderful way for for our youth to get physical activity as part of their daily lifestyle, as well as all of the social skills they gain through sports. But is playing any sport worth endangering their long-term health? I want to see more kids play sports. I just want to see them play sports safely.
0: Don Comstock, professor of epidemiology at the Colorado School of Public Health and lead author of a study that looked at concussion rates among female lacrosse players, published in the journal Injury Epidemiology. Colorado is the ancestral homeland of several Native American tribes, But many local mountains were stripped of their native names and renamed by white people. One listener wrote to Colorado Wonders asking which mountains have names with racist ties. CPR's May Ortega reports.
7: With today's renewed attention on racist symbols spurred by police killings of black people, Nick Hyman says during a hike on one of his favorite mountains, he started to wonder.
3: I'm
2: wondering about... The history related to any of our 14ers or any other mountains in Colorado, and whether those mountains are tied to the Confederacy or other racist
7: connections? The answer to that is yes. Take Mount Evans, 60 miles west of Denver. It's named for John Evans, who was Colorado's governor in the mid-1800s when the Sand Creek Massacre happened. U.S. soldiers attacked people from the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes, killing mostly women and children despite their truce flags. Evans defended the attack afterwards. Mount Evans is at the only peak in Colorado with a questionable name. There are names that are more obviously racist, like Red Skin Mountain, 50 miles west of Castle Rock or Squaw Mountain near Idaho Springs, named after a slur against Native American women. Colorado historian Sam Bach says every mountain that was stripped of its original Native-given name could be considered problematic. A lot of the mountains in Colorado were named for people and by people, you know, for whom the Native people living here were not fully-fledged, respectable cultures. To them, uh, the Native people were savage. There are four petitions pending with the U.S. Board on Geographic Names to rename Mount Evans and those two other peaks. It's really important that they all have names that make everybody feel comfortable. Herb Welsh of the Northern Arapaho Tribe says it is deeply disrespectful to use slurs and name mountains for people who killed Native Americans.
1: You know Those people, uh, you know, they're held in high esteem and high regard. But from a Native viewpoint... They're criminals, you know, they committed atrocities
4: against our people.
7: Welsh says if there's to be healing from the country's racist past, renaming monuments, both natural and man-made, is one place to start. Change has to come and we have to make it happen now. It has to happen. It cannot go on like this. So we have
4: to change the small things. We have to start small. Mountaintops, street names, how histories are written.
7: One of the people working to change Mount Evans' name is Kate Tynan Ridgeway. She petitioned to rename it Mount Cheyenne Arapaho in honor of those who died at Sand Creek. While she suggested a new name for Mount Evans, she says that's all it is, a suggestion. I kind of see myself as a catalyst for the process.
3: I would definitely honor
7: more the indigenous communities that are involved in that decision. Another petition suggests Mount Evans should be renamed Mount Soul after Captain Silas S. Soul, who refused the order to participate in the Sand Creek Massacre. A petition to rename Squaw Mountain suggests the name Mount Mistansta after a female Cheyenne leader who facilitated trade in Colorado. And a petition to rename Redskin Mountain suggests the name Mount Jerome after I Irene Jerome Hood, a white woman who photographed the Front Range in the late 19th century. Fred Moscoida is a member of the Arapaho Nation. These names have long been an issue for Native Americans, and he says the Black Lives Matter movement, fueled by the police killings of several Black people, has breathed new life into the conversation.
1: I'm glad that this new resurgence of of bringing things out, that's good, but it's terrible that it took something like this for it to happen.
7: Muscoida lives in Oklahoma, but he says he and others in his tribe still see Colorado as their ancestral homeland, and having racist names on its map is distressing.
1: And and that's not what we want people to see when they they look at a beautiful landscape, to to be reminded of, of the bad way of looking at a person.
7: He says he and a friend who's with the Cheyenne Nation came up with their own suggestion for a new name for Mount Evans.
1: We kind of kicked around names, and then we came up with Blue Sky. Because the Arapahoes were known as the blue sky people. The Cheyennes also have an annual ceremony that they do that is for renewal of life. And it is called blue sky.
7: The U.S. Board on Geographic Names has had these petitions on hold because Colorado has lacked its own board on geographic names ever since its longtime leader retired in 2016. Governor Jared Polis announced a new board, which will get input on the proposed mountain names for many organizations and make a recommendation to the federal board. And the odds of any of these Colorado suggestions being approved? Well, the U.S. board has considered almost 290 changes to names considered offensive over the last two decades and approved almost 200 of them. I'm May Ortega, CPR News.
0: Classical musicians from around the world have created a video tribute to George Floyd, including cellist Bian Sang, who's on faculty at the Colorado College Summer Music Festival. These musicians performed a well-known work called the Albinoni Adagio. Some background. In 1992, a cellist in Sarajevo played the piece daily for 22 days to commemorate 22 civilians killed when an artillery shell exploded in front of a bakery. For the tribute to George Floyd, the musicians, most of whom are black, performed the adagio in a video edited to 8 minutes, 46 seconds, the length of time Floyd was pinned to the ground by Minneapolis police. Performed in a video tribute to George Floyd. It includes a member of the Colorado College Summer Music Festival, Beyonce, who's on faculty there. I'm Ryan Warner. That's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for spending time with us at CPR News.